The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In the fall of 1984, the future was looking promising for 20-year-old college junior Angie Samoda. The university student had just moved into her own place. She had a boyfriend, plenty of friends, and a job in the field she was studying. But sometimes, bad things happen to good people. Join me now as we explore the case of Angela Samoda and a friend who went on a relentless quest for justice. You'll find out how one fateful decision changed the course of someone's life and how a painful tragedy was transformed into a journey of hope. Angela Marie Samoda was born in Pennsylvania on September 19, 1964. Angela, or Angie, as her loved ones called her, was only an infant when her father passed away. Frank Samoda served in the U.S. Navy during World War II and was killed in Korea in 1965. Angie was one of six children raised by their single widowed mother, Betty. Angie grew up in Amarillo, Texas, a city located in the northern part of Texas, the biggest city in the Texas Panhandle resting on historic Route 66. In her teenage years, Angie attended an exclusive all-girls school located in Dallas called the Hockaday School, a nationally acclaimed private school that operates both as a day school and a boarding school with a strong emphasis on college prep. After graduating in 1982, Angie enrolled at Southern Methodist University. As an incoming freshman, the university matched her with a roommate named Sheila Gibbons. So back in the 80s, when you went off to college, they called it potluck. They would do a potluck match. And so they would take certain characteristics of one person and match them with somebody they thought they would get along with. And I was matched with Angie, which was shocking because she and I really were very different on many levels, but we had the same core values. We both didn't have fathers in our life. I grew up in originally a mother-father household, and then my mother divorced my father. And so we grew up at, with a single mother. Her father had died when she was younger. Her mother was a single mother raising her children. I had a single mother. I think we bonded on the father level. You know, neither one of us had that male influence in our life. We were both the youngest children, females. And what that's like, you're usually, I think, the glue in the family, and she definitely was, and I think I am. In their first semester together, Sheila and Angie 
had a slight wedge driven between them due to Angie's love life. She had a series of casual relationships, one which involved her boyfriend at the time, staying at the girl's dorm way too often. She dated the boy next door to her house back home, which was Amarillo. And he was supposed to be going to Oklahoma University, but he ended up being at our dorm room a lot, too much. Too much that it it bothered me. And I'm not real shy. And so definitely we talked about my feelings towards him. Um, He gave me that creep vibe. And, you know, of course, she's going to defend him since they were dating. To me, he was so possessive and so controlling. So the summer comes around. She breaks up with the, the guy that gave me the creeps. That relationship ended bitterly with the rejected boyfriend threatening Angie with a knife. With the source of tension removed, the co-eds became much closer. Angie was a double major in engineering and computer science during a time when few women worked in those fields. Sheila majored in psychology and was fascinated by human behavior, an interest that was also reflected in her social life. She was more guarded when getting to know someone new Angie, on the other hand, was the opposite. She joined a sorority and eventually became social chair at Zeta Tau Alpha. As a social butterfly, Angie invited Sheila to all the biggest parties on campus and nights out at local bars. Angie was very outgoing. She was very vivacious. She didn't meet a stranger. Angie walked into a room and it was like, I'm here and I would be probably more off watching the interaction between people. She had the greatest taste in clothes. She had a great wardrobe. I came to school with five Mexican dresses, one in every color though. That's all I could afford and that's all I could wear. And when I walked into the dorm room, her side was all made up and I brought a blanket and a pillow. I mean, it was just, it was different. She was a different level. She was very sophisticated. Angie was also very academically inclined, often studying for exams late into the night. Angie was really smart and very dedicated to studies and school. I struggled. I have dyslexia. When I was in school, it was very hard. By her sophomore year, Angie was working part-time at the tech company. Texas Instruments. She was also dating Ben McCall, a handsome and slightly older construction manager. Between Angie's full course load and Ben's busy work schedule, the pair enjoyed spending any free time they had together. In the fall of 1984, Angie was starting her junior year at SMU. Sheila had moved back home to North Dallas and began commuting to class while Angie had made the decision to leave her sorority. Using money she'd earned from her part-time job, combined with the social security benefits she'd been receiving after her father's death, Angie was able to afford to move to a second-floor condo just off campus. On the night of October 12, 1984, Angie and her two friends, Russell Buchanan and Anita Cadella, went out for a night of drinking and dancing. Angie invited her boyfriend Ben to come along, but he couldn't because he had to work in the morning. Angie was the designated driver for the night, 
and she picked up Russell and Anita from their dorms before heading out for dinner to an Irish bar and grill chain called Bennigan's. After dinner, the group of three began bar hopping around Dallas. They started at the nightclub Studebaker's, then Lakewood's Boardwalk Beach Club, before settling in at the Rio Room. The Rio Room was an exclusive members-only club tucked behind a local restaurant. It had the swagger of a speakeasy and attracted the socialites of Dallas. Angie had managed to get them in, using Ben's membership to the club. Inside the Rio Room, Angie moved from table to table, seeming to know nearly everyone in the room. Although her natural beauty captured the attention of perfect strangers, it was her vibrant personality that made her genuinely likable. The bars were crowded more than usual that night because it was the beginning of the Red River Showdown weekend, the annual football game between Oklahoma and Texas universities. The game coincides with the State Fair of Texas, which attracts around 2 million visitors each year. Because the events are so popular, Dallas police officers are usually focused on crowd control and monitoring drunken shenanigans. At around 1 a.m., Angie and her friends decided it was time to call it a night. After dropping Russell off first, Angie stopped by her condo briefly so Anita could grab her curling iron. She'd originally intended on staying the night at Angie's, but changed her mind. After giving Anita a ride back to her dorm, Angie stopped by Ben's place, which was a short 10-minute drive from her condo at around 1.30 a.m. Ben would later describe the tone of their conversation as playful teasing, with Angie joking that her weekend was off to a fun start while Ben had to be responsible. After exchanging a goodnight kiss, she drove back to her condo. Not too long after she settled in for the night, she heard a knock at her door. At approximately 1.45 a.m., Ben received a call from Angie. There was a nervousness in her voice. She didn't sound like herself, and her words were disjointed. At the same time, he heard strange noises in the background and asked Angie about it. That's when she told Ben a man had knocked on her door, asking to use her bathroom and telephone. The bathroom is down the hall, Ben heard her say. He then heard a male voice respond in the background. Angie then asked Ben if there was a convenience store close by with a payphone the man could use. Ben thought there was and looked up an address to give her. Ben heard Angie give the address to the man, but didn't hear a response. Moments later, Angie hastily told Ben she had to go and would call him back. When he didn't hear back from her, Ben called her repeatedly. After still no answer, Ben anxiously drove to his girlfriend's condo. When he pulled up, he noticed Angie's Toyota Supra parked just outside. After knocking on Angie's front door, Ben walked towards the back entrance while calling her phone. As a construction manager, Ben had an early generation mobile phone for work that he kept in his truck. As he got around to the back, Ben could hear Angie's landline ringing from the kitchen, but there was no movement inside. Alarmed by Angie's absence, Ben wondered if she'd gone to the convenience store with the man. So that's when he decided to drive over to see if he could spot Angie. 
but Angie wasn't there. Ben returned back to Angie's condo again, but this time decided to call police. At 2.17 a.m., Ben was on his phone with Dallas PD, informing them of suspicious activity. It was Officer Janet Crowther and Officer Ken Bajenska who responded to the call, and at 2.40 a.m., they arrived to meet Ben in the parking lot of Angie's complex. He recapped to officers what had happened, from Angie's night out right to the suspicious man she'd let in. While they admitted there was cause for concern, they couldn't yet determine if they were dealing with an emergency. After getting a key from the property manager, both officers entered Angie's condo while Ben lingered in the doorway. Upon entering, Officer Bajenska's initial impression was that something had gone awry. In the living room area, he spotted one black dress shoe resting on his side, as if it had been kicked off, and there was also a scuff mark noted on the floor nearby. While Officer Crowther searched both the living room and kitchen areas, Officer Bajenska moved towards the guest and master bedrooms. Moments later, he discovered Angie's body. The scene was horrific, and it was clear by the amount of blood Angie had been repeatedly stabbed. According to Officer Bajenska, the crime looked like it was the result of evil preying on innocence. Just in case Angie's attacker was still lurking inside, the officer kept moving silently. At first glance, he noticed several pieces of evidence in the master bathroom. A smudge of blood near the light switch, blood on the lower part of the shower curtain, and blood residue in the bathtub. After clearing the scene, Officer Bajenska alerted his partner he'd located Angie. Both officers called the apparent homicide into the station, and an ambulance rushed to the residence. Tragically, EMTs determined it was far too late to save Angie, and she was pronounced dead at the scene. Upon hearing the news, Ben tried to take a step toward the bedroom, but the officer stopped him. There was nothing anyone could do. At the young age of 20, Angie was gone. Because the crime occurred prior to the development of DNA science, evidence was limited to fingerprint comparison and forensic pathology. Dallas homicide detective Virgil Sparks checked for signs of a forced entry. The front door had been locked when Angie's body was discovered, and the back door was deadbolted. He experimented to see if someone could have climbed up a tree to Angie's second-floor condo, an intruder, which was possible, but unlikely. The door showed no signs of tampering, and there were no signs of a break-in. This could only mean Angie had let her attacker in. Angie's other black shoe was located in the guest bedroom. It was on its side near a pile of clothing, but none of it was ripped or bloody. Immediately, investigators combed the condo for evidence that could lead them to Angie's attacker. Fingerprints were taken from the bathroom, a drinking glass on the coffee table in the living room, a dry cleaning bag next to Angie's body, and the lid of the toilet in the master bathroom. 
All the fingerprints except one were compared. They belonged to Angie. The palm print pulled from the toilet lid was unusable. David Spence, supervisor of the Dallas County Crime Lab, found traces of blood scattered around the condo. This included blood in the bathtub drain and droplets of blood in the tub itself. The droplets were diluted, signifying the blood had fallen when the bathtub was wet. There was also traces of diluted blood found on the kitchen counter, as if someone had tried to wash the blood off their hands and then lightly touched the countertop. Detective Sparks also noted one glaring piece of evidence. A knife from the kitchen was clearly missing. Despite a thorough search, the murder weapon was never found. Angie's death came as a complete shock to everyone who knew her, especially Sheila. The phone was ringing as I walked through the door and I ran to my room to answer it and it was a sorority sister of Angie's and a friend of mine. She was crying. Through her tears and sobbing, she said that there was an accident. Now, Angie had just had an accident a few weeks earlier, so I thought it was a car accident. As I was trying to get information from Barbara, I would ask her questions and she continued to cry. And for some reason, I just asked, is she dead? And Barbara started to cry more. It was such a terrible moment. So, of course, I'm upset. I'm crying. Barbara's crying. And through the sobbing, Barbara tells me that I need to call the Dallas Police Department, that the detectives wanted to talk to everybody who knew her. When I finally finished the call with Barbara, I was sobbing so hard and probably a little out of control that my mom came into the room. Couldn't even get the information out. It was so horrific. And of course, looking at my mom being upset made me even more upset. It was such a horrible moment that I don't wish upon anyone. It also set in a whole different environment in in my world, going from, you know, not knowing evil, not ever coming into contact with anything really bad in my life, that I slept on the floor next to my mom's bed for months. They actually had to get me a dog in order for me to sleep in my own bed. Unable to handle the devastating loss of her close friend, Sheila dropped out of college that semester, but kept in regular contact with Dallas investigators. She was willing to do whatever she could to help detectives with Angie's murder investigation. In the days, weeks, and months that followed, detectives interviewed everyone Angie knew, hoping to identify anyone who may have had a motive. They questioned men who didn't know Angie personally, but knew where she lived. Among those interviewed were a local auto mechanic, contractors who installed the carpet in her condo, as well as maintenance and landscaping crews linked to the condo property. Lastly, 
They looked into local criminals previously arrested on rape charges who were not incarcerated at the time of the murder. Despite no useful leads emerging from their efforts, detectives were determined to approach the investigation from all angles. The case was even featured on Crime Stoppers, a local television program offering a phone number for anonymous tips. The show's producers promised a $1,000 reward for leads, while Angie's family offered an additional $10,000. But still, no substantial leads materialized. Investigators ultimately identified four potential suspects. One suspect was Lance Johnson, Angie's ex-boyfriend from Amarillo. Though he admitted to threatening Angie with a knife once before, he denied any involvement in her murder. His alibi of being asleep at his parents' house at the time of the murder was confirmed. Within hours of discovering Angie's body, her boyfriend, Ben McCall, was brought in for questioning. After providing a written statement, Ben gave saliva and blood samples and then allowed a fingernail scraping. Although no blood or hair was found under his fingernails, his saliva and blood were compared to samples collected from Angie's body. Ben's blood type ruled him out as Angie's attacker. He also consented to having his home and truck searched, but nothing linked him to the crime. Another suspect who was looked into was Russell Buchanan, the SMU student who had gone out with Anita and Angie only hours before the murder. Russell and Angie had only just met through mutual friends at a local bar's happy hour. At some point, Russell had asked Angie out for lunch, but she declined. Instead, invited him to go bar hopping on that fateful night. She hadn't known Russell well, but he was four or five years older and making a name for himself as an architect. Angie thought he might be a good connection to have. Russell immediately fell under suspicion because detectives had difficulty locating him. On Saturday, October 13th, the day Angie was killed, Russell attended a wedding at the Dallas Country Club. Then he flew to Houston to visit family. He was back in Dallas by the evening of Sunday, October 14th. He only found out about Angie's death when several armed police officers knocked on his door. In the months that followed, he was brought in over and over again for questioning. Despite cooperating with detectives, Russell became the prime focus of the investigation. He also gave police saliva and blood samples, which were then compared with the samples from Angie's body. Angie's attacker had been a non-secretor, a term that means the perpetrator did not release their blood type's antigens into bodily fluids. Because Russell was determined to be a non-secretor, he remained a suspect. By that point, the lead detective had built a rapport with Sheila and was candid about his suspicions. During that period of trying to find out and trying to help the police with Angie's case, I would meet with the detective at bars and we would go over and talk about who Angie knew and who she hung around with and what he believed happened to Angie that night. One of the things he told me was that Russell was probably the person that had killed Angie. I'm in my 20s. A police officer believes someone murdered someone. I'm going to believe him. 
I had been talking to people and reporting back to the police and telling them what was said. And at one point, I remember saying I was really uncomfortable talking to Russell. And the detective asked me why, and I said I didn't know. Hoping to expose the truth, the same detective asked Sheila to have lunch with Russell. The goal was to ask Russell where he was in the days before and after the murder, and to see if that story matched what he'd told investigators. During the meal, all Sheila could think about was she could be having dinner with the murderer. It took some prying, but Russell did confirm he had been out of town to see family right after Angie was killed. He wasn't hiding anything, and yet, police brought him back in for a lie detector test. He was even shown graphic photos of the crime scene. Detectives accused him of wanting to get intimate with Angie, and then became enraged when she rejected him. According to police, this narrative could have been a possible motive. For six months after the murder, the interrogations continued, only halting when Russell hired an attorney. Investigators lacked sufficient evidence to charge Russell, but retained their suspicions. He was then placed under 24-hour surveillance until he left to attend graduate school in London. The final suspect was a long shot. Patrick Barlow, an SMU student, reportedly had a crush on Angie. It was alleged he sent harassing letters to Angie in the days leading up to her death. But after police confirmed Patrick's alibi, he was eliminated as a potential suspect. Dallas investigators had run out of leads, the case went cold, and remained unsolved for over 20 years. In 1988, Sheila Gibbons became Sheila Wasaki, and her and her husband went on to raise two sons in Nashville. Though she would often think of her friend, Sheila tried her best to build a new life. But no matter how much time had passed, Angie and Sheila would always share a special connection. In the South, when your children go to school, you go to Bible study. I went to Beth Moore Bible study at the church, and they were doing a course on Daniel. When you do the Bible study, you would go home and do homework. Being dyslexic, it is the worst thing for me because a Bible is very small letters, very condensed, not an easy thing for someone with any kind of learning disability, to say the least. So I would go home and immediately do Bible study homework, get it over with and be done. So I'm working on the chapter and I lean back and I look over to the right. Now, dazed, sleepy, alpha state, not sure. But I see Angie. It didn't last very long. She didn't say anything. It was just a few seconds. That moment, I knew it was time to do something. So I reach over, pick up the phone to call the Dallas Police Department. I knew it was the right time for her case to move forward. I just didn't know how much work and effort it would take to get it done. It's estimated Sheila called the Dallas PD over 700 times. 
After numerous phone calls to the Dallas police getting absolutely nowhere, I started complaining to the head of security in our neighborhood. I told him that the police were completely ignoring me and I wanted to get her case solved. It was time. It was time. So the head of security said, I will sponsor you to be a private investigator. You'll make a great one. I was mentored by him and learned a whole lot about investigations. Also, I took a test to become a private investigator and I was under his license. He had a background as a former police officer. He knew the ropes. I also was taught or mentored by a former Los Angeles police officer who had done 600 homicides. So he taught me, you know, the paperwork and the first 24 hours, how important that is, and also follow-up. Get off the couch and interview. As a licensed private investigator, Sheila thought officers might take her more seriously, but they continued to be dismissive, despite how frequently she called. The one thing that happened over and over from my phone calls was, first of all, being told things like the evidence was lost or they didn't have the file. Of course, thinking back that they didn't have Angie's file is kind of crazy, but I kept calling. I don't know why, but I kept calling. And one day I talked to probably a rookie because he answered a lot of questions And we got to one question about the DNA in the file, and he said, oh, I have to talk to my sergeant, and I'll call you back. Well, I knew he wasn't going to call me back, and he didn't. Finally, in July of 2006, the Dallas Police Department decided to reopen the case. Detective Linda Crum reached out to let Sheila know she was looking into Angie's file. So she went over the case with me. It wasn't like I needed to force her to look into it. She said she had the file. The file I was told earlier that they had lost in a flood and they didn't have the file or the evidence. Well, lo and behold, they had this semen. Getting it tested was not easy. You had to ask for it to be tested. And it took about two years from the time that Linda and I spoke. And it turns out, it was worth the wait. When it came in, we owned several businesses by that point, and I was at one of our businesses in the back room when the phone call came in, and it was Linda Crum. And she said, we got him. Now the next words I expected was to hear Russell's name, and she names this person named Donald, who I had no idea who he was. And I'm going back through my mind trying to figure out, gosh, was it a fraternity person or somebody from work? Where did Angie meet him? And she explained that he was a serial rapist, and that's the person that the DNA matched. A sergeant from the Dallas Police Department reached out to Russell Buchanan to let him know they had identified Angie's real killer. He offered Russell an official apology for what the police department had put him through all those years ago. 
Though Russell had made a name for himself in Dallas as a respected architect, the accusations resurfaced from time to time and tarnished his reputation. With the real culprit tracked down, it was time to set aside past misgivings. Arkansas native Donald Andrew Best Jr. was a repeat offender. In 1977, he was charged in Harris County for aggravated rape and aggravated kidnapping with sexual assault. He was sentenced to 25 years in prison, but released on parole in 1984 when he raped and killed Angie. Police theorized Donald Best Jr., 36 years old at the time, had seen Angie at a bar and had become obsessed with her. He may have even followed her home one night before the attack to determine where she lived. They speculated he had used Angie's kitchen knife to silence her when Ben knocked on the door. Though Donald wasn't initially caught for his crime, he was arrested in 1985 for another sexual assault charge. Having violated his parole by committing another felony, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. On April 15, 2008, Donald Andrew Best Jr. provided a written statement regarding the new charges. In it, he stated, I got out of prison on parole in March of 1984. During that summer, I went to Dallas to visit some friends. Over the next several months, I visited Dallas three or four times. At that time, I was living and working in Houston. During my visits to Houston, I met two or three women. Mostly, I would meet them at a bar in the Oaklawn area. One lady was from California and was in Dallas for a foosball tournament. I went with her to a hotel in Irving and we had sex. Another lady I met, I went with her to Granbury, I think, and we spent the weekend there. I remember another girl that I met at a bar. I don't remember anything about her. I never heard anyone. Most of the rest of 1984, I stayed in Houston and worked. During sex with any girl, I have never been violent. His statement clearly didn't hold a lot of weight. Donald Best Jr. was the strongest suspect Dallas PD had found since the 1984 murder. The trial was initially delayed for several weeks. The 61-year-old had suffered a massive heart attack and needed time to recover. On June 2nd, 2010, the trial officially began, nearly 26 years after Angie was brutally murdered. Defense attorney Richard Franklin didn't dispute his client's long history of sexual offenses, but argued being capable of sexual assault didn't make Donald a murderer. With the death penalty on the table, the serial rapist was fighting for his life. Dallas County prosecutors honed in on the complete brutality of Angie's murder. Within 12 hours after her death, an autopsy was performed by Dr. Gilliland from the County Medical Examiner's Office. The doctor noted visible signs of sexual assault, including bruises on her thighs and a bloody print near Angie's mouth. This implied her attacker's hand had been silencing her when she tried to scream. She mentioned blood void areas, suggesting she'd been held down. Visible defense wounds on her hand suggested she tried to break away, but couldn't. The doctor went on to say Angie had been stabbed a total of 18 times, most of which 
penetrated her left lung and heart. Based on the way the blood pooled on her chest, her assailant had been straddling her, weighing around 250 pounds. In asking the jurors for mercy, defense attorney Richard Franklin mentioned Donald Best Jr.'s poor health, clean prison record, and his troubled upbringing. He argued his client could carry out his life sentence without posing a threat to anyone. But as the trial progressed, testimonies against the defendant proved more and more damning. Several women testified about being raped by him. Donald Best Jr.'s ex-wife alleged repeated abuse during their three-year marriage. There were several incidents of physical violence, including one while she was pregnant with her daughter. After a fit of rage was unleashed on their infant daughter, his former wife fled the marriage. In closing arguments, Dallas County Prosecutor Josh Healy posed a series of rhetorical questions to the jurors. He asked, if Donald Best isn't deserving the death sentence, then who is? Who's done this much harm? Who's tormented this many people? The jury took less than an hour to deliberate before finding Donald Best Jr. guilty of capital murder. He was sentenced to death and transferred to Polunsky Prison, which serves as a waiting room for male inmates on death row. As of the time of this recording, no execution date has been set. In 2013, Donald Best Jr. filed two appeals which challenged the legal sufficiency of evidence leading to his conviction. Both appeals were denied. Though Sheila was glad to see Angie's killer brought to justice, she felt no sense of closure. Tracking down her friend's killer didn't bring her back, so she looked toward the future. Hoping to prevent crimes like Angie's, she started a nonprofit group called Without Warning Fight Back, a nonprofit dedicated to pursuing justice and accountability for victims of violence. Using crowdsourcing and modern technology, Sheila, as well as hundreds of volunteers, work to re-examine cases that have gone cold, regardless of a victim's family's financial situation and providing them with a voice. Becoming a certified private investigator had been inspired solely by solving Angie's case. She considered retiring after the trial, but soon realized how many other cold cases remained unsolved. Her role in helping to solve Angie's case drew the attention of grieving families desperate to have answers about their own loved ones. But Sheila soon realized she didn't have the time nor resources to help all the people asking her for help. And there were a lot of people. You know, one year I kept records. I had 110, I think I turned away. I think I'm gonna try to get money to help these families because I have all the tools I want to do a nonprofit where I help these families do that. While Sheila may not be able to bring their lost family members back, perhaps she can prevent surviving victims of homicide to be spared from endless years of suffering brought on by unanswered questions. Angie would be proud of her friend Sheila for the positive impact she's had on others, longing 
for closure. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. We'd like to give a special thank you to Sheila Wasaki. In 2018, Sheila began producing a podcast called Without Warning, and it's now heading into Season 3. Without Warning, Season 3 begins on May 14th, which is about a pregnant woman, a 10-month-old baby, and a 28-year-old young lady who were found on a railroad track. The police ruled it as suicide, and I am taking a deep dive through crowdsourcing for this family that has been basically ignored by their concerns and questions and what they've had to go through shouldn't happen in today's society. So my Patreon people and my crowdsourcing people are all working together to find answers for this family. The young woman's name is Katie Major. Her daughter was River Lynn Major and her son Aiden Major. So if it wasn't suicide and it was a homicide, that would be a triple murder. I called the season Investigation Derailed because I don't believe what the police have put forth actually happened. So with the public's help, with people out there that want to help these families and have a heart to help these families, we're going to figure out what happened to Katie, River, and Aiden. If you'd like to find out more about Sheila's podcast and the work she's doing to help victims' families, we'll provide a link in the episode notes. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by the Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com.au slash G-E. I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone's standing at my door I hope they can't get in cause I'm not prepared to run